Hello, welcome to Four Questions, and I'm delighted to be here with Rachel Meager. Rachel's going to tell us a little bit about how to study microfinance and its impact. So, there's been a lot of hype about microfinance. How should we investigate whether it works? So, it, it's quite a complicated question, obviously. So, when we think about doing economic studies, we are thinking about a specific location, a specific time, a specific group of people, and it's a specific kind of intervention. So, microfinance differs from place to place in what they're offering people. And so when we're going from a sort of set of very heterogeneous uh, instances and we want to say something general like, well, does microfinance work? Mm. Or, you know, how much does it work? What is the impact of microfinance? We're asking to transport local knowledge into a general context. Mm. And in order for us to have any hope of, of answering general questions, which may or may not be possible, we're going to have to amalgamate evidence from a lot of different uh, sources and a lot of different contexts and really aggregate the evidence we're mm. finding there in a way that I think, you know, a, uses a process that allows us to respect that there may not be a general answer, that it may, the answer may be, well, microcredit does something different in lots of different contexts, because when you give people uh, these small loans, you know, it depends on who the person is and it depends what the terms of the loan are and stuff like that. So, sure. yeah, so we want to take into account the heterogeneity even when we aspire to ask these general questions about whether it works or not. Right. So how did you do that in this study? So this study starts uh, from the observation that you can actually build a statistical model that aggregates information only to the extent to which it detects commonality across the things that you're aggregating. So I'm working in a framework that's well established in statistics. Um, it's called hierarchical modeling. So basically you're saying, I, yes, I have this local information, but I may have general information percolating up from these local settings. Um, and I'm going to put some kind of link function. In this case, it's a distribution, but you could do other things and say that there's a relationship that's potentially there between these local contexts, but the strength of the relationship is not known. Mm -hmm. uh, and the data itself will tell me the strength of the relationship as well as then using that strength to sort of say, well, the relationship's strong, so you did learn something general, or the relationship between these studies or these contexts is weak, and so you didn't really learn anything general. So that's a well-established framework mm -hmm. in statistics mm -hmm. and is starting to be used in economics. Um, the challenge was that when we start to think about whether microcredit works or not, this is exactly the kind of intervention where the average effect on a group of people might not be an informative object at all. So what you really might be interested in is saying, um, let's look at these groups and see how the outcomes across the whole group change. So one thing you know, that we know from Robert Townsend's work uh, is that you know there could be spillover effects on other people yeah. who don't take up the microfinance, mm -hmm. um, and you know there could be negative impacts on these people. There's also been some concern in the policy world that maybe even people who do take it up, some of them have negative impacts because they get over indebted or the the products are not designed to, for their needs, and so it doesn't suit them. Um, and so there is that issue, and and so we want to look at kind of the group level outcomes. Uh, and the way that development economists who've been working in this literature have thought to do that is by computing sets of quantile treatment effects. So if you look at the randomized trials of microcredit, um, and you know we've been assuming throughout this discussion that really, uh, or, or in my work, we're just using randomized trials, um, because if you want to aggregate these very heterogeneous sources, it adds another layer if you also have different kinds of studies. So for mm. now, we're just looking mm. at a one kind of study. 
Um, these randomized trials, uh, which were done by Esther Dufour, Abhijit Banerjee, mm. you know, Bruno Crepon, lots of other researchers, um, Dean Cullen, they computed sets of quantile treatment effects. And some of them did find, in fact, negative uh, quantile treatment effects at the lower quantiles and positive quantile treatment effects at the upper quantiles. But not all of them found that. So some of them found zero effect and mm. then a noisy effect in the upper quantile or sort of noisy and small everywhere. So there was some heterogeneity, it looked like, in the local studies. Um, but there was sort of sufficient uncertainty on this heterogeneity that it wasn't clear whether this was just sampling variation. Mm. And in fact you know, we were seeing the same pattern everywhere, or were these differences genuinely, uh, you know, actually reflecting different effects on the groups. Um, the problem was that although the Bayesian hierarchical framework had been very well developed by statisticians, going back to Don Rubin and even before, and Andy Gelman worked on these a lot, uh, there hadn't been an occasion for statisticians to think about sets of quantile treatment effects as an object they would like to aggregate. Um, and I think that's natural because for economists, this is motivated by a policy concern of, of sort of thinking, well, yeah, even if it does nothing on average, uh, which is what people were starting to say after mm. the studies came out, maybe actually there's groups of people who are really helped by it, but other people who are harmed by it. Right. And that's really different yeah. to, you know, it, oh, does, it does literally yeah. nothing yeah, for yeah, anyone, right? Because if it has positive and negative impacts, then you're like, well, we definitely should be targeting it to somebody mm. and then mm. we need to find out who they are and da, da, da. Um, on the other hand, you know, an average zero could be a zero everywhere. Sure. And that's really different for welfare and for thinking about policy. Um, so what I, I wanted to bring the Bayesian hierarchical methodology to this problem of aggregating sets of quantiles. Uh, and there were some challenges involved in that because when you think about aggregating sets of quantiles, now you're aggregating whole distributions. Um, even if you discretize them up, you actually know a lot about these, like how these functions have to operate. So um, cumulative distribution functions have to be monotonically increasing. And if you if your procedure spits out a result that's not monotonically increasing, you know the answer is wrong. Um, but in a lot of how people were working with quantiles, people weren't really correcting for this. And there was some work by Victor Chernozukov and co-authors to say, well, maybe we should re-rank them. But a lot of that was going to be challenging in an aggregation framework because we're saying, well, I want to aggregate while respecting the logical constraints that I know mm -hmm. have to apply mm -hmm. to these objects. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that in the Bayesian framework, uh, it's not that challenging to do. You, you just need to redefine the objects in such a way that they actually... Uh, obey those constraints and then you aggregate in the transform space and what's lovely about Bayesian inference is once you treat unknown objects as random variables you have access to all of the results from probability theory and statistical theory on how to transport between parameters so I you know if I do inference on a parameter theta I know what I'm doing with the parameter theta squared I just do a variable transform uh, whereas these things can get really tricky if you're trying to do GMM or frequentist inference or anything like that, where it's not clear that you can actually make a translation between theta and theta squared. Um, the other challenge that came up, which I was very surprised by, whereas this, this challenge about respecting the logical constraints on the estimates and, and really getting that information into the problem in order to maximize what you can learn, uh, that was sort of expected. What was unexpected is that all the sampling theory we have for quantiles, um, which has to go into models when you're aggregating, if you're worried about sampling variation, uh, is for continuous outcome variables. Uh, and that works fine for things like consumption. Like, yes, consumption is measured in dollars or whatever, but 
we think there's an underlying continuity to that measure mm-hmm. and the, the sense in which it's discrete kind of comes out of the wash. Um, or if it doesn't, you can dither it with a small amount of noise and it's fine. What we were dealing with in microcredit is that many business variables that we're measuring for these households uh, were not remotely continuous. So uh, for things like uh, business expenditures, business profits, we saw big spikes of households who recorded zero for these outcomes. And then we saw long continuous tails. So in the case of expenditure, very, very fat tails so that you know there were occasionally people who were just spending 100 times more on their businesses than everybody else. Right. Um, which is a common pattern that you see in firms in developed countries. Yeah. Um, and it, later I found out this is increasingly observed in developing countries as well. Uh, these power law structures are really common. Um, but we didn't really know how to deal with the fact that you have this partially discrete thing and then you have this tail. Uh, and, and so if you try to apply the models that I built based on our knowledge of quantile sampling theory, uh, you just get complete garbage. Like It just doesn't work at all. Uh, and this is, I think, again, where economics comes in because you know, from statistics, you might look at this and you say, well, I know about how continuous variables work. I have this discrete variable. Let me just transform it or something like that. But as an economist, you think, wait a minute, I know why this variable is discrete. Uh, I know why there's a spike of people at zero. It's because when, you, when you're figuring out whether to operate a business and then how much investment to make, you fundamentally got two stages in the decision process. One's an extensive margin decision where I say, am I going into business or not? Mm-hmm. And then if I'm going into business, am I operating this period, right? Like we know in developing countries as people have seasonal businesses. And then if I do decide to operate, now I have this intensive margin decision where I think, well, how much will I invest? And therefore, how much revenue will I get? And how much profit will I make? Um, and so what makes sense if, if you think from a generative model perspective, which is a very Bayesian perspective, is to say, I can put some structure on that process. So I can say, okay, there's a multinomial procedure here that's allocating people into bins of whether you've got zeros or non-zeros. And then I can start to characterize separately these groups of people. Um, and so then you can start to understand, well, does microcredit affect allocation across the extensive component or does it only affect the intensive component or nothing? Um, and of course, you can translate that, that parametric model back into quantile treatment effects if you want to, um, to make it comparable with the other, with the other things. Um, but yeah, so that was a bit more involved. And initially, I was really concerned that something had gone wrong until it until I started to think like an economist again and bring it back to, uh, okay, this is the result of decisions people are making. Okay, cool. So you did this very awesome interdisciplinary analysis. And then what did you find? So what I found in microcredit and what was very interesting to me, given that I was using two different, uh, quite different aggregation methodologies, depending on whether the variable was discrete or continuous, mm-hmm. is that along the vast majority of the distribution, so from the zero with uh, quantile to about the 75th or 80th quantile, uh, you see a very precise zero impact. So what that means is that the group, if you think about groups of people and you think about giving these guys microfinance access, the majority of the group looks exactly the same in the two places. Right. Uh, now that doesn't mean that individuals are not swapping around within there. It doesn't mean it's not affecting them, but the aggregate for those guys is not being affected. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was consistently across all of the variables and across all of the studies. Right. So that was very precise information, very generalizable mm-hmm. information. However, above the 75th or 80th quantile, uh, 
I started to see very noisy, non-generalizable results. So there we were seeing lots of differences, much more noise within the studies as well as across the studies. Uh, so it seemed that, you know, and now the point estimates were starting to diverge from zero, whereas, you know, below the 75th quantile, you're really seeing almost an exact zero. Um, the point estimates in some cases are quite large, but the uncertainty is many, many orders of so magnitude what, what, larger. So what, what could explain all that noise? What might be going on? Well, so part of it could be the fat tails, right? Mm. So if the tails are just very, very fat, then it's just very hard to learn anything about the, mm. Upper, mm. the upper quantiles. And that's not just a statistical artifact. What that says is that uh, there's very few people who are really, really up the top, uh, and they're very different from everyone else. And so even though I'm employing all these methods that I described to try to pass information across the quantiles, yeah. understanding that mm. they have to be monotonically ordered and so I can learn something about the neighboring quantiles, uh, you know, if it's true that these upper quantile guys are really different, then you're not going to learn a lot if, just because you see a lot of guys slightly lower down. Mm. So you can't pass that information across. Um, and that's really a challenge. Um, you know, and I think part of it also is that if, you, if you're thinking, you know, you've got one or two super, super productive guys. Yeah. If you really change how that guy operates his business, you make a big change, but it's only one guy. So right. how are you going to do statistical inference on this guy? That's mm. very challenging. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a genuine problem. I don't think it's just the fat tails because we did see in the profit data a fat tail in the negative as well. So some people are just making like huge losses occasionally. Um, and still, you know, there was zero impact there, although it wasn't as precise as, as the middle of the distribution. Uh, and in terms of thinking about well, why are people different from each other yeah. in this way, um, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of potential explanations. So, you know, you could think about a general story about how there's just heterogeneity in the entrepreneurial talent. Like some people right. like Steve Jobs or whoever are just like a hundred thousand times better mm. at being an entrepreneur than say you and I are. Mm. Mm. Um, and you know, the treatment effect on you and I from startup incubation <laughs> is going to be much smaller. It's going to be zero in my case. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you give Steve Jobs a bunch yeah, of startup right, capital, okay. you're going to change the whole world. Mm. Uh, that is a hard thing for, for asymptotic statistics or, mm. you know, statistical models to deal with. Mm. Um, and so when you're dealing with things, you're saying, I need to take out sampling variation. And you're thinking, well, I must have some knowledge about the sampling variation, which often comes from asymptotics. You're going to have trouble. Uh, and this is a, uh, you know, this is a real constraint. It's not like Bayesian methods get you out of this hot water. They more acknowledge that you're in the hot water. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's not that because I'm Bayesian, I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm not accumulating information. It's just that the model says, hey, you didn't accumulate information. Uh, okay, yeah. so let's suppose... A policymaker in Zambia, for example, mm -hmm. is thinking about whether they should support microfinance. Right. And they read your paper. And what right. does that tell them about whether they should support it and encourage it? Well, I think it, it is hard to make these decisions in isolation. Mm. What we would ideally want to have is this kind of analysis for all the potential kinds of uh, interventions that this policymaker was considering. Right, sure. Um, but I think, you know, if the policymaker is saying, I'm looking for an intervention that is going to reliably improve you know, the average person's income or mm. groups of people. I want to see this village as a whole. I want to see the, the distribution of outcomes uniformly shifted up. Mm. Microcredit is not going to give that to you. 
Uh, and yes, we only have seven randomized trials of just pure expansion of access mm -hmm. to microcredit, mm -hmm. which is what I'm concerned with. So if you're considering a different policy, this evidence may be less relevant. But if you're thinking about that expansion and you're thinking, what you're imagining is I just want everybody in this village to be earning, you know, $100 more per year or something like that. It just doesn't look like microcredit is going to give that to you. And can we, can we make that inference from your pooling of RCTs? So, for example, because we've aggregated all this data, is it possible that uh, a policymaker in rural Zambia were they to implement microfinance, it could be really effective because in rural Zambia you can buy insecticides, you can buy seeds, and then you can kickstart agricultural productivity. Mm -hmm. You know, is it possible that that there could be local beneficial effects that are concealed by your study? So it's possible, but mm. the results suggest that these would be unlikely right. to occur. Um, and what's what's so even pooling the data, getting this aggregate yeah. picture, can still tell us that in, in any local environment it would be very unlikely. Yeah, because basically what what we found or what I what we look at with the data is we say uh, when I aggregate this and I and I do so in a modeling framework that uh, would translate heterogeneity across settings into uncertainty at the mm. general level. The fact that I have a precise estimate of the zero impact along most of the distribution mm. uh, suggests that, in fact, that information is transportable. Now, mm. uh, there, to, to, to other places, there are metrics of uh, how much pooling these models do, which yeah. is uh, analogous to how much generalizable information they find. Um, I had to do some extension of these metrics uh, to the multiple quantile setting, um, and there were some challenges associated with that. Uh, the, the pooling metrics did find, uh, I would say, a moderate amount of pooling, um, and that's because they are kind of balancing across the fact that there's a lot of pooling uh, where there's a zero, and then there's not very much pooling at all in the top part of the distribution. Yeah. Um, so... There's a, I think that there always is going to be some uncertainty about, you know, in any specific setting, how comparable yeah, is yeah. it, you know, and if, and if someone was saying, well, you know, I'm thinking about microfinance in South Sudan, mm. can I apply your research? Then I would say South Sudan is probably qualitatively different right, from sure. the places that but we for do. For the most part, we yeah. can be fairly confident that this is not a reliably good policy intervention for most people. It, yes, it doesn't seem like in the kinds of places that we study, yeah, uh, yeah. which span quite a few different types mm. of locations. And, and okay, but I am interested in these fat tails because yes. I think that's exciting. Yeah. And I wonder, could you tell from your data, is that about a specific kind of place where that was more likely or a specific kind of circumstance or a particular kind of people like you said the Steve Jobs or, yeah. or what can we find what, what further research could we do to work out what's going on there right because that seems like there's something cool and exciting yeah. going on so, yeah that would be very cool um so there's two kind of options for thinking about that so obviously when you see that you think if I could know who to give it to that yeah would be yeah yeah so that I want to speak about that within the context of the data and the approach that I had, mm. and then I want to talk a little bit more about some research other people have done. So, Sweet. So in my setting, uh, I sort of have two levels uh, where I have households and then I have countries or settings. Mm -hmm. um, I call them settings or sites, um, but they're really countries and NGOs and sort of everything that's bundled in with that study. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do have some data that's common across the household, so um, variables measured at the household level. Uh, 
And then we have some variables measured at the country level. And in some cases, uh, the level at which a variable is measured is different in the different studies. So that makes that somewhat challenging. Mm. So, for example, uh, there's there was some concern in the literature that maybe microcredit works differently in rural versus urban contexts. Yeah. Um, the challenge is that for some of the studies, there's variation within the study and whether you've got households in urban or rural areas but in many of the studies everybody in the whole study is either in an urban area or a rural area right yeah um and so that makes it very challenging to 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 work out the particular impact of the urban yeah exactly to throw something out of the box yes um now on the other hand there was one household variable that researchers in this literature identified as potentially important um, and that was previous experience operating a business uh, and this was really interesting because when you, we went back to the original motivation for microcredit, uh, there were two kind of parallel motivations. So the one was, Muhammad Yunus speaks about this often, that you know he saw that uh, many small entrepreneurs, small business owners in, uh, the, I think it was Bangladesh? Yeah, oh gosh, yeah. I should really know that. Yeah, we were, were sort of being exploited by money lenders. Yeah. And so, you know, these people already in business, uh, clearly they're surviving in their business despite yeah. this horrible exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so if we could just give them a loan, how much how much better would that be? That would yeah, be amazing. Loan, yeah. Right. Um, but there was another theory, which was, well, maybe, you know, the people who are begging for money on the street could actually open businesses and turn to entrepreneurship, um, and that would be amazing. Uh, and so as a result... So um, there's a distinction between supporting existing entrepreneurs on better terms and catalyzing Right, exactly. Yeah. And so this this variable about mm. do you have you know an existing business mm. uh, was tested in a few of the studies, and uh, in fact in the um, in the Banerjee India study mm. they found a large and very precisely estimated well by by frequentist standards. But is uh, that is that effect. Did, is that did they test for wealth as well? Because you know whether you have a business could just be that you had the right, capital. Right, it could to... just be that you had the capital. No, so I think they were just splitting out on right, and right. the. the challenge was in many of these studies the baseline surveys weren't necessarily fantastic quality mm-hmm. or didn't they didn't have a panel yes. or stuff like mm-hmm. that um, and so they they kind of had to deal with that as best they could but you know where they looked at previous business mm-hmm. ownership they did find mm-hmm. in their you know in some of the studies these statistically significant effects and I'm doing cool. like the air quotes here so that was kind of promising so I thought at least I need to check that yeah. is that yeah general get into that so what's really interesting is when you aggregate all the, the evidence across, you don't see statistically significant effects Ooh. on most of the variables for uh, people who have prior businesses. Uh, but they are the source of all of the uncertainty. So the groups of people who don't have yeah. prior businesses, essentially nothing is happening to right. them pretty reliably. Right, but um, something, but something is happening, what. but we don't know what. In this the is upper such a mystery. I love yeah. it. And there's some research, and actually there's um, there's still a lot of uncertainty in that mm, group, and mm. I would say that uncertainty is really localized in that mm. group, but uh, there's a pretty high chance that that group in the upper tail is seeing increases in their consumption. Mm. So it does seem like something is happening in mm. that group, um, which is quite exciting. And there's some other research uh, which has been fantastic on trying to understand uh, if we can find these guys, if it's mm. only a handful of guys or, or, or women, uh, who are really excellent and who we should be giving these loans to. So um, my classmate at MIT, Ben Roth, has mm. a paper with um, 
some co-authors where they look at trying to elicit using a really fancy mechanism to elicit truth-telling. Uh, if we were going to give a loan to someone in this village, who should we give it to? Uh, and we, they did all sorts of incentivizing uh, so that you would tell the truth and they tried to make it uh, sort of relative mm. so that you know you don't have to take a stand on how well this person will do, you just have to rank the people. Mm. Um, and they found uh, really strong predictive power uh, of that ranking. So the other people in the village know who is good. Uh, so that's really interesting to me. And I think there's... There's definitely I, that's still work in progress. To so my wait, knowledge, one thing, one one thing that confuses me. So why is it with the earlier studies that weren't pulled, that weren't aggregated, mm. they saw this effect? Mm-hmm. But that we, why would we be more uncertain about it when we pull it? Because not all of the studies actually saw that effect, and not right. all of them reported okay. that effect. Right. Okay. So there was a bit of you know some of them mm. tested for it, some of them reported it. Mm. Uh, actually, with all the data, because I had access to the full yeah, data, yeah. and I believe it's all still online, yeah. um, you know, I could construct that metric even in studies where they hadn't tested for it. Uh, so it simply was that it's just not the case that in all the studies you get the significant impact. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's just there is heterogeneity in that group. So of sometimes studies. microfinance for existing business people works, and sometimes it doesn't. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that we even know enough to right. know that it's not working or it's working. It seems okay. like I would say there's something going on in that group, mm. and it seems like in conjunction with other studies economists have done that there could be a way forward in terms of targeting you know, a few people in each community. So it's not that, you know, the places where we find a zero impact, Mm. uh, you know, on this group, it may not be that it, you know, that it would not work. It may just be you didn't sample the one guy, you didn't sample Steve Jobs, right? We have random sampling. Maybe Steve Jobs is there and he is taking up microcredit, but he's not in your sample. Yeah, right. Uh, So I wouldn't be so sure as to say, you know... And people might not have asked that question. Yeah, exactly. No, and and a lot of the earlier microcredit, it wasn't focused on targeting, um, although there were attempts to try to encourage take-up, because we're really talking about offering loans, Mm. there were attempts to encourage take-up. Um, but but nothing as sophisticated as the Roth and co-authors work uh, on, on trying to figure um, out. I the also think it's interesting about this is so often we think with aid or with, or with development interventions that they really need to target the poorest. Mm. You know, we need to make sure that we get we know leave no one behind. Yeah. Target the poorest. Yeah. But maybe there's an interesting tale here that actually for some interventions you might create a greater benefit by not necessarily going after the poorest right so it's a really it's an interesting question from a i guess a welfare perspective Mm -hmm. and a decision theoretic perspective currently we don't uh, analyze data in this way or um, analyze decision making in this Mm -hmm. way in the social sciences Mm -hmm. which I think it would be really exciting if we could move towards it but sort of saying well there's obviously going to be you know in simple welfare models like if you, the poorer somebody is, the greater the happiness that the person will receive sure. from getting an extra dollar. We're all utilitarian. So, exactly. So, you know, we should be targeting these guys mm-hmm. on the basis of welfare analysis. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you give it, if you took that money and you gave it to Steve Jobs and then he employs everybody else mm-hmm. in the village, maybe that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Right? So, it's just a question of, um, you know, what is the mechanism by which the aid is supposed to work? Mm-hmm. Are we thinking about, you know, if, and if we're thinking about, entrepreneurs and employment what kind of time scale is that so we're going to need to use that in conjunction with other things so i think there's a lot of really complicated questions to ask and analyses to do there that 
my paper gets nowhere close to, um, but I hope in the future. Okay, but I have another to. question. Sure. So the method sounds totally awesome and amazing and very lovely. <laughs> Could you use this same methodology to explore other RCTs on other issues? Yeah, absolutely. So the methodology is very general. Right. Uh, so it basically just says like you just feed in the sets of quantiles and the sampling area that you have on the quantiles. And you do that with RCTs, right? Yeah. So so we do that in RCTs. Uh, in principle, you could do it more broadly. Mm. The challenge is combining different kinds of studies. Mm. So if you have studies where you know that you're getting a causal estimate or, you know, based on minimal assumptions, as people like to say, you're getting a causal estimate versus studies where you're really much less confident that there isn't selection bias between the treatment and control groups or issues like that. Um, then you may want to build a special structure to aggregate right. that leverages the strengths but, and weaknesses. But we could still use this model and we can put anything into it, like maternal health or literacy yeah, or absolutely. any kind of interventions around that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, that sounds very awesome indeed. So th- yeah, that would be, I mean, I would love to see it go go further and, and go forwards. And we, Rachel, I am make it more- go viral. <laughs> Mixing methodology, interdisciplinary. <laughs> well, we are hoping, I'm hoping to uh, develop uh, our packages so that people will be able to do this much more easily for their own applications. Uh, because my, my concern was really, you know, and, and I really welcome, like, people's feedback on what would be useful for them to have. And, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of scope for this. And, and, you know, particularly, this is really the first attempt at aggregating sets of quantiles. There could be many better ways to build these models that I just haven't thought of. And I would love to, you know, well, talk about that. Well, it's always a collective endeavor, that. right? Exactly. Um, but, yeah, going forward, I just, I think there's so many applications. Like, yeah. if you think about education, yeah. you know, if you think about health interventions, anything where you think there's individual heterogeneity, mm. which is most applications, mm. you know, if you're just aggregating the averages, you're, like, not even learning anything about the thing you really care about, which is, you know, on... Uh, at the aggregate level, what is happening to groups of people mm. where I turn the social policy on or off. Um, and of course, we would, we would want to go further than quantile effects, and we would want to really understand these sorts of mechanistic effects and make more assumptions and, and then figure out what we can see. But I think that quantile treatment effects are a really good first step in the direction of saying yeah. an average is not enough. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm a policymaker who's concerned about inequality uh, or if I'm concerned about sort of a Hippocratic oath type of do no harm, then I need to be checking Boom. for yeah. these kinds of quantile treatment effects, basically. Rachel, you are awesome. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you.